before we observe Christ's method, we should look at one of the most well-known statements of all of Adventism. Not long ago, an entire Sabbath school lesson quarterly uh, featured this statement. Yet there is more to learn. Let's look at the quote briefly, and then we'll better understand Christ's method. The quotation, you could say it with me, a revival among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. Now, the word revival never stands alone. There must be a revival of something. In Munich, it used to be the world capital of beer drinking. However, the consumption of beer has decreased over the last few years. And so in an effort to have a revival of beer drinking in Munich, they have Munich Fest in October. Uh, they feel they need a revival as an urgent of their uh, financial needs. But is that what is being asked for here, a revival? A revival in of what? True godliness among us is our greatest and most urgent need. But what is true godliness? Christ gave a perfect representation of true godliness by combining the work of a physician and a minister. If our greatest need is a revival of true godliness and, a, and true godliness is combining the work of physician and minister, what is our greatest need? To be joined together. True godliness. Ministering to the needs of both body and soul. Le healing physical disease and then speaking words that brought peace to the troubled heart. We'll watch him do that today. Let's look again at the quotation. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our first work. In triage, what kind of problem must be addressed first? The most urgent. We have many needs, but what is our most urgent and greatest need? Because of this, what should be our first work? To seek true godliness. And what is true godliness? Combining the work of the physician and the minister. What is the work of a physician? Ministering to the needs of the body and healing physical disease. What is the work of a minister? Ministering to the needs of the soul and speaking words that bring peace to the troubled heart. And God calls us as physician, dentists, and health professionals and ministers to do both. Christ set the example. Christ was bound up in all branches of the work, we're told, medical ministry. He did not make any divisions. He did not feel that he was infringing on physicians when he healed the sick. 
He proclaimed the truth. And when the sick came to him for healing, he asked them if they believed that he could make them whole. I thought of this quotation during our early morning de devotional by Dr. Schwartz. If they had faith, in other words. He was just as ready to lay his hands in healing on the sick and afflicted as he was to preach the gospel. He was just as much at home in this work as in proclaiming the truth for healing the sick. Read that with me. Healing the sick is a part of the gospel. What's a part of the gospel? Healing the sick. This is not complicated. Seventh-day Adventists have been called to be modern Good Samaritans, extending our helping hand to the robbed and injured lying in our pathway. Our present-day priests and Levites must not pass by the robbed and the injured lying in their pathway using modern-day excuses about being out of their area of specialty. to take people right where they are, whatever their position, whatever their condition, and help them in every way possible, this is gospel ministry. That is such a, a, a good statement. We need, to, we need to read it together. To take people right where they are, whatever their position, whatever their condition, and help them in every way possible, this is gospel ministry. Help in any way you can. It may be necessary for ministers to go into the homes of the sick and say, did I read that wrong? It may be necessary, uh, is that a misprint for physicians to go into the homes of the sick? No, it says it may be necessary for ministers to make house calls. Into the home of the sick and say, I'm ready to help you and I will do the best I can. I'm not a physician, but I am a minister, and I like to minister to the sick and afflicted. The next two phrases are crucial to understand. If we would minister to the sin-sick soul, find someone with a sick body, ministers. Those who are sick in body are nearly always what? Sick in soul. If they're sick in soul, who do they need? A minister, right, that brings them to Jesus. Of course, they need Jesus. But a helping hand from a person, that's a minister. And that's a sick person, all, almost always sick in soul. But the converse is, always, is also true. When the soul is sick, the body is made sick. True godliness understands this connection and doesn't take care of the soul or the body but ministers to both. The true minister seeks to help the sick, and the true physician seeks to minister to the soul. What an opportunity the consecrated physician, we could add the dentist, healthcare provider, has to show a Christ-like interest in the patients under his care. A lot of physicians and healthcare providers, dentists, think this is more complicated than it is. Some years ago, a physician was talking to me, educated in Adventist schools from grades one through Loma Linda and uh, through uh, a, uh, a residency at the White. 
and said they didn't know how and had never done a Bible study. Anybody didn't know how to do it. They had the idea that you had to know all these doctrinal texts and uh, this is how you could help patients spiritually. I grew up, my father was a minister, I grew up in a home where we uh, had the opportunity, privilege really, to attend a lot of seminars on how to witness. They gave various answers to objections, the various Bible studies on doctrine. That's good, I don't condemn it, but that is not what God calls most of us to do. Notice how simple the work of the physician, dentist, and healthcare provider really is. Notice the next uh, statement. It is his privilege to what? Speak encouragingly, encouragingly to them and bow at their bedside to offer a few words of prayer. I can't give a talk like uh, Pastor Mark Finley. Uh, but I can, in, I can speak encouragingly to my patients and when appropriate, offer a few words of prayer. And I've discovered that this is the very most enjoyable part of my practice. And more than that, if you're not a physician or a minister, you don't have to be either. You can do the same thing. There are ways that even a busy practice with short encounters, um, such as uh, dermatology, which I'm in, see uh, usually about 40 patients a day. I'm slow compared to Dr. Chung. Uh, but I can speak encouragingly even in those short encounters to patients. I found that the simple question while I'm washing my hands, getting ready to see the next patient uh, there in the room, gives me insight before the encounter, and I'll ask something non nonchalantly while I'm looking in, washing my hands, have you had a good year, if it's been a year since I saw them, or if it's been three months for another problem, how's the fall been for you? And when there's a pause in the answer or a tentative kind of answer, I guess it's been okay. It invites a sympathetic follow-up question that uncovers the death of a spouse or the diagnosis of cancer of a child, and it gives often an opportunity to speak some encouraging word to the person that's anxious or grieving, and when appropriate, to say a few words of prayer. Let me share just a few experiences. The instruction is not complicated, but it works. Georgia, not her name, expressed an interest in health. How could I encourage her? I could encourage her to come to the cooking school class that week. Gave her an announcement. Um, she came, and uh, we had a chance to chat. She expressed interest in joining a group to study the Bible with a small group that were seeking to understand the big themes of the Bible. Small group to study the big themes of the Bible. Um, so she said she was interested. I said, would you like me to get back in touch with you? She wanted that. So next week, I gave her a personal call. Invited her to our home for a small group that was seeking to understand the big themes of the Bible. 
Um, she couldn't believe that a physician had called her. She came. And tomorrow, she's being baptized. Um, I've been involved in many projects, because, I, and I don't have time to prepare Bible studies. So our Bible study was showing videos of a very good prophecy seminar that dealt with the big themes of the Bible. I had time to do that. I could come home. I could uh, put that on, and we could uh, have a simple study. Um, A minister came to our, off, our office. I didn't know it was a minister, and he was concerned about a spot up here. Um, we discovered a spot down here that turned out to be melanoma. Before his surgery, I asked him. I didn't know he was a minister. I asked him if he would mind if we would have a word of prayer. And he went off how he was a minister, and he would just be delighted. He was so excited that somebody would offer a word of prayer. And... Uh, when his sight was healed enough, he told his congregation, he lifted up his shirt to show them the smile that had been left uh, by a doctor that prayed for him. And I've spoken at his church twice now. The program coordinator of the Rotary Club. I didn't know it was the program coordinator, but I asked if he uh, wanted a word of prayer before surgery. And uh, he... Uh, he did. Subsequently, he asked me to speak at the Rotary. We were chatting. One of the nice things, um, Eric, that in my surgeries, they're all awake. <laughs> um, and so we can talk about good things, and the nurses can listen in. And uh, it's wonderful. And so he asked me to speak at his Rotary, at the Rotary. And he introduced me as the doctor who gave, and he says, you know, it's just a short prayer, but he prayed before surgery. That was how he set it apart. Um, not everybody is excited about having you pray for them. Um, I had a patient that uh, uh, said, well, if it makes you feel better, Dr. Mills, you can pray. <laughs> I felt, you know, a little um, coldness. And uh, I said, it does make me feel better. You don't want your doctor nervous, do you? <laughs> so I said, you better pray. <laughs> so we prayed, short prayer. And um, his family came to thank me later. He says, you know, we've tried to pray with him for years. He's an atheist. He won't have anything to do, but he came bragging about how his doctor prayed with him. <laughs> a year later, he came to the office, asked to be worked in as an emergency skin problem. I looked over his skin, didn't see any emergency whatsoever. There was really no problem. And suddenly, I realized that there was something else must be going on. And so after I finished and I gave him something to make it sound like there was something that needed to be treated, <laughs> I, uh, I paused and said, tell me, I'm going to say George, not George. This is HIPAA, you know. Um, 
tell me what's going on uh, this year with you. Everything going okay? And he said, and tears welled up. He said, last week, Dr. Mills, my son, who's 40 years old, was helping somebody at their home, was up on a ladder, and somehow slipped off and is dead. And you know, as I listened to him, encouraged him, and then asked if he would mind if we have a word of prayer, he didn't ask me this time if it makes you feel better. He came to our office, not because he had a skin emergency, but because he didn't know anybody else to go to, to pray with him through his heart emergency. But if we really want to know how to minister to the soul and the body, we should be looking at the one who really knew how to do it, and that's Jesus. And I'd like us to accompany him on a house call. Not many physicians make house calls today. No time. Our waiting rooms are too busy. It's too expensive to go to the home. But Jesus was never too busy to make house calls. We need to give a context for our story this morning. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitudes welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Compared to Jesus, we don't know what it means to be busy. I'm tired after seeing patients for four hours in the morning. And then four hours in the afternoon. But Jesus didn't start at 8 a.m. and he didn't stop at 5 a.m., 5 p.m. Healing crowds of people in the evening, counseling Nicodemus by night, robbed of sleep by storms that he stilled, praying long hours before sunrise, treating demoniacs at dawn, teaching disciples through the day. He was busy. Jesus' waiting room always seemed to be full. The context is given in Matthew and summarized well by my favorite modern author. At length, faint and weary with the work of teaching and healing, Jesus left the multitude in order to partake of food in the house of Levi. But the people pressed about the door, bringing the sick, the deformed, and the lunatic for him to heal. As he sat at the table, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, came. Jairus was an influential man in Capernaum. As ruler of the synagogue, his job was a combination of senior pastor, head elder, and head deacon. It was not easy for this haughty leader to swallow his pride and seek help from Jesus. That marginalized, extreme, maybe fanatical teacher. I say it reverently. To seek Jesus was to lose his synagogue position. It meant ridicule and rejection by the religious leaders. But his only child, a 12-year-old daughter, was dying. And in a last desperate effort to preserve her life, Jairus turned to Jesus. Previously, he had consulted the most learned pediatricians in Israel. But they had finally given his daughter up to die. And because Jairus waited to the very point of death to finally seek Jesus, his daughter was too sick for him to even carry to him. And he set off on his mission alone. So desperate had he become that even the fact that Jesus was in the home of a despised publican could not deter Jairus. 
pushing his way through the outcasts and poor waiting outside the door of Matthew's house, Jairus gained admittance. Verse 41 tells us he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. Jesus stopped his lunch, leaving untasted food lovingly prepared for him. Jesus and his disciples immediately started out to make this house call. But it was not alone for the daughter that Jesus went to the mansion of the ruler of the synagogue. On the way to heal the daughter, Jesus sought to heal the father, the synagogue ruler. Like the pastor that came with one problem on his skin, he was worried about not realizing he had a dangerous problem elsewhere on his skin. As he went, the multitudes thronged him. Mark adds it was a great multitude that was around him. And this great multitude brought Jairus' emergency, its first apparent obstacle, but really a solution, more time with Jesus. The crowd of people was so great that there was virtual gridlock, though the father anxiously and impatiently tried to speed the pace. Jesus could only move slowly in the direction of Jairus' home. The picture of Jesus and crowds are almost always wrong. Generally, they show him with plenty of personal space between him and the crowds. His comfort zone's not invaded. But that is not how it was. It might be helpful to get an eyewitness description of Jesus surrounded by crowds. He allowed, we're told, the crowd to press round him and complain not, though sometimes almost lifted off his feet. His was a crowded waiting room, and he had no back entrance. He never allowed the impatience of those waiting to make him, waiting to see him, make him either impatient or hurried. I love the eyewitness report of inspiration. Let the Holy Spirit play the YouTube video on the screen of your imagination. Page 319 of Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2. Although it was only a short distance, their progress was very slow. For the people pressed forward on every side, eager to see the great teacher, who had created so much excitement, begging his attention and his aid. The anxious father urged his way through the crowd, fearful of being too late. But Jesus, pitting the people and deploring their spiritual darkness and physical maladies, was it? Physical maladies that he was concerned about? Yes. Was it only physical maladies? Was it spiritual maladies, spiritual darkness he was concerned about? Was it only spiritual darkness that he was concerned about? He would stop now and then to minister to their wants. Was Jesus a gospel minister who could treat spiritual disease? Was he a physician who could treat physical illness. Jesus had true godliness. Joined together was minister and physician, health care provider. I wonder which requests were granted. I wonder what made him stop. I wonder which requests were ignored or seemed to be. What requests made him stop now and then? 
Some in the crowd made desperate attempts to get near him and get his attention. Occasionally, he was nearly, nearly carried off his feet by the surging masses. Though most of the stories of this experience will have to wait for heaven, there's one video clip that is preserved for us to watch. In stark contrast to the medical crisis of a dying girl is the chronic problem of an older woman. Luke 8:43. Now woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. Stop and think about that detail for a moment. The very same year Jairus and his wife were rejoicing over the birth of their only child, this woman began mourning the loss of her health. Now 12 short years later for Jairus and 12 long years later for this woman, they both have a need that only Jesus can fill. Sometimes my receptionist will get a call from a new patient demanding to be seen now for a skin problem they've had for years. And this woman's problem had been present for years. Why would she wait to seek Jesus' help now? This was not Jesus' first year of ministry. We don't know exactly what was the cause of this woman's menorrhagia. Fibroids, polyps, adenomyosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, thyroid problems, endometriosis, liver or kidney disease. Whatever the medical diagnosis, the woman would have become anemic from the prolonged bleeding, decreasing her endurance. Furthermore, this poor woman was not only sick, she was ostracized like a leper. She was unclean. She could not worship in the temple. She could not get a job, and she couldn't have a relationship with her husband. When her problems began, Facebook friends Googled menorrhagia, but found no answers. Acquaintances suggested this remedy and that remedy. This diet and that, nothing worked. In fact, some treatments worsened her condition. In a frantic but fruitless search for help, she had gone from physician to physician, specialist to specialist. Dr. Luke is diplomatic when speaking of his fellow physicians. He says she had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Mark felt under no <coughs> such professional restraints. He bluntly said she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Like Jairus's daughter, this woman had been abandoned to die by the physicians. Acute problems impact us far differently than chronic conditions. Chronic conditions grind us down emotionally, socially, financially. At last, this woman had no more money to spend. She had no one to turn to. Her friends were tired of hearing about her problem, and she couldn't discuss it with them. Her prayers had seemed unanswered. Alone, penniless, friendless, and forsaken, she despaired of ever having a life again. Like Jairus, when every other solution failed, she turned to Jesus. Jesus' waiting room was filled with stories of failures. These were the poor, the hopeless, the rejected, the marginalized, the ignorant, the weak, the odd, the misfits. But it was these outcasts that were transformed by Christ and made up the early church that is the wonder of the universe and standard that judges all subsequent generations of Christians. 
We don't have the details about how she even got funds to travel to Capernaum where Jesus often stayed. We don't know how far she had to travel or how long it took, particularly in her weakened state. But without an appointment, she was in the waiting room outside Matthew's house trying to reach Jesus. She may have watched as Jairus cut to the front of the line and got inside the house. This woman faced daunting odds against reaching Jesus. Have you ever tried to communicate with a very famous person? What are the odds that you would be able to get an appointment with the president or with the pope or with the queen of England? Not easy. First, she had no influential position that would make the crowd open up so that she could push through the crowd. The crowd gave her no notice. <clears throat> they would not open up for her. And second, she had no emergency to get the disciple gatekeeper's attention to bring her to Jesus quickly. And finally, Jesus himself seemed to pass her by. Notice this quotation, amid the confusion, she could not be heard by him nor catch more than a passing glimpse of his figure. He was so near, but seemed so far. And this is the condition, ladies and gentlemen, of much of suffering humanity. But she had seen a glimpse of Jesus, and that glimpse gave her the opportunities to, she sought. She had seen him just ahead making every exertion, and coming from behind, she was able to stretch her arm to the limit and just manage to touch the edge of his garment with her fingertip. She thought she was reaching out to touch Jesus. She was to discover that he was reaching out to touch her. For the instant she touched the edge of the cloth, she felt a power surge through her body, and she was made whole. Her bleeding stopped. Her anemia vanished. Her energy level was normal. Mark says she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Since the woman was healed and knew she was healed, Jesus would have gone on with his travel toward the home of Jairus without further delay. But that is not what happened because Jesus was not simply a physician of the body. He could not be satisfied by only healing the body. He desired to make her every whit whole, so Jesus stopped, turned around, and asked, who touched me? I remember the surging crowds lifting him off, almost knocking him down. One eyewitness recalled the scene. The people answered this query with a look of amazement. Jostled upon all sides and rudely pressed hither and thither as he was. It seemed indeed a singular inquiry. When they all denied it, Peter expressed the confusion of all the disciples by the question, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? Jesus continued looking directly at the woman while he explained, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. The years of sickness had shattered her emotionally. She was frightened. The healing of her body had not healed her emotionally. For Jesus to stop 
his healing by only addressing her physical needs would have made the healing incomplete. For years, she had been embarrassed and ashamed of her problem. She had become adept at hiding the problem from others. Though she was satisfied with one brief touch of the hem of Christ's garment, Jesus had much more than this to offer her. Since a brief and distant encounter with Christ was so life-changing, he desired her to come boldly to the throne of grace for all the problems of her life. His invitation to her is extended to all who have had a short but life-changing encounter with Jesus. Falling down before him, she had now moved beyond seeing Jesus as the Savior of her body. She accepted him as the Savior of her soul. Jairus had kneeled before Jesus with a request. This woman kneeled before Jesus with thankfulness and praise. Jesus loves and responds to both kinds of prayers. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately, Luke tells us. And after her testimony, Jesus gave her instruction that would guide her for the rest of her life, and it can guide us. And he said to her, daughter... He assured her that she was his child, and she had all the privileges of a child. It was not alone for this woman that Jesus paused. He wanted to increase Jairus' faith and teach Jairus an important spiritual truth as well. Just as Jairus was concerned about his daughter, he saw that Jesus had a father's concern for his daughter's. The well-being of this outcast woman. Be of good cheer. Her years of illness had brought her depression. Jesus now addressed the woman's depression. She was a child of the king. There was no reason for hopelessness. For God's children, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. She might have endured 12 long, painful, embarrassing years, but God had not forsaken her during this time. Her illness had taught her the limited value of money or specialists to solve the great problems of life. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It was not until now that she was ready to be healthy. The experience so grievous was for her good. Like Moses' years hurting sheep or Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, like Job's losses or illness or David's years as a fugitive, she could know that all things would work together for those who loved God. Your faith has made you well. It was trusting God in the darkness that made her well, and it was trusting God in the light that would keep her well. Go in peace. Like the publican worshiper who prayed for mercy and left the temple justified, this woman had not only had her body cleansed, her soul was cleansed as well. She was forgiven. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For a moment, Jairus forgot his own anxiety as he listened to the woman's tearful testimony of long days of suffering now in the past. His own heart was being softened. The healing touch of Jesus was providing a remedy for Jairus. We see that Jesus' healing ministry goes far beyond the body. The delay of Jesus had been so intensely interesting in its results that even the anxious father felt no impatience, we're told, but watched the scene with deep interest. 
as the healed woman was sent away comforted and rejoicing, it encouraged him. What are we to do? Encourage our patients. Short prayer. It encouraged him to believe still more firmly that Jesus was able to grant his own petition and heal his daughter. But just then a message came that was to test his faith more deeply. Luke tells us while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher. Jairus thought that he was coming to Jesus to save his daughter. He didn't realize that Jesus was seeking to apply the healing remedy to his own soul, but Jairus is now ready to be treated more directly. Jesus overheard the report and dealt not with the phys physical issues of the daughter, but the emotional and spiritual issues of the father. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Jairus had two great problems. First, he was fearful. Second, he was unbelieving. And those would keep him out of heaven. These sins are classed with abominations, murders, moral impurity, witchcraft, idol worship, and dishonesty. But Jesus' word could as powerfully heal Jairus' fearfulness and doubt as it could resurrect and heal her daughter. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. The throngs following Jesus are left outside. Here we see how Jesus conducted an anointing service. It was done quietly, privately. Jesus had spoken with Jairus. Now he had an opportunity to minister to the wife and mother as well. Jesus' work is primarily an individual work. He's not interested in simply educating the masses. He delights to minister to the needs of the individual. He doesn't look at our group here as an assembly one group, he sees each individual here right now, and he wants to minister to you. Jesus also works in homes. We see he restores families. And though the throngs following Jesus were not permitted in the house, there was much confusion within the home. Verse 52, now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. Humans are so clueless. We mourn at the wrong time in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. We laugh when we should be weeping, and we weep when we should be mourning. What good would all this wailing do to restore the girl's health? And what is the point of mourning for this girl? She's going to be well in a few moments. And these mourners didn't wail when the girl took a nap. Why wail here? There's no reason to mourn in the presence of Jesus. In his presence is fullness of joy. He wipes all tears from eyes. These mourners stopped mourning and started ridiculing Jesus. Verse 53, they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. But death isn't the end. Jesus gives life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He forgives our iniquities. He redeems our life from destruction. But he put them all outside. This is a miniature judgment, you see. Disbelievers will be outside the city walls. Jesus separates the wheat from the tares and the chaff. By our response to the word of God, to truth, we determine whether we will be put outside. And those who want to remain in Jesus' joyful presence will put out of their minds all doubt and disbelief of God's word. In this enacted parable, Jesus was also saying our children need to be protected from the influence of the doubters and scoffers of God's word. 
No sense to raise them in an environment or they will quickly die again. Jesus didn't want this girl to be raised in that environment. Do you want to be medical missionaries? Dismiss the ideas of those who ridicule the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. After Jesus put the doubters and mockers outside, what did he do next? Did he give them health education? There's a place for health education, but it doesn't help the dead. There's a place for instruction, but it doesn't help the dead. There have been many times I've tried to educate the dead. Jesus came close to Jairus' daughter and took her by the hand that was cold from death. And Jesus approached to each person is individualized. He said nothing to the woman who was bleeding. He simply came as close as her arm could reach. To the man with a withered hand, he said, stretch it out. But he took the hand of the dead daughter of Jairus. As medical missionaries, we need to know each type and how to reach them or have them reach us. Then Jesus called, saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and it commanded them that she be given something to eat. She arose immediately. Now is the time for health education. Jesus does this and tells them to feed her. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Medical evangelism is effective in bringing people to Jesus. But Jesus' medical missionary work, as much fame as it brought him, was a quiet work, a work without outward show. Jesus doesn't heal to bring himself fame and fortune. He heals to bring comfort and relief. And he uses the physical to introduce the spiritual. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your youth, your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.